If you would take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians, we're in Philippians chapter 1, and it's been uh, a moment or two since we were there, and so we want to get back and look into this. We're in verse 21 of Philippians 1, so please turn there if you would in your Bibles, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, grab a pew Bible there in front of you and uh, dive in and find that. As we begin in this incredible book, the first thing we saw was a wonderful introduction in the first 11 verses. And in that introduction, we saw that it fully incorporated every aspect of the church. Now that's fairly normal for Paul's greetings, but here we also saw that the leadership were specifically identified because of the critical role that they have. And not only that, we saw that there was a strong reference in that introduction both to Christ and to the gospel. Six times in those 11 verses, Paul mentions the Lord and twice the gospel. And we also saw that that introduction was one that had a great focus on prayer. And and this is such a wonderful reminder for us. Uh, I think I have mentioned to you before, there is a a four-volume commentary set that is called an exposition of prayer igniting the flame of our lives or something of that nature it is written by dr jim roscup it is like 99 dollars for four volumes and he goes through as a function of his second dissertation which is amazing in and of itself that he would go for a second doctorate but he discusses every prayer in the bible Um, He does not hit every psalm in the Bible because most of them are prayers, but he hits many of them. But it is an outstanding resource, and it's available in paper on Amazon and uh, available electronically as well. Again, his last name is Roscup, just like it sounds, R-O-S-S-C-U-P. He is uh, a brilliant expositor, humble, and, and wonderful godly man. And he speaks about all of these prayers as he goes through. And Paul, in his introduction, two different times mentions prayer. He sets the beginning as a prayer, but he shows us two kinds of prayer. Even in that, he shows us a prayer of adoration and a prayer of supplication. Of course, we should be immediately drawn with that thought to the ACTS acronym, A-C-T, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, which is kind of an overarching view of our prayer, but it is a wonderful way for us to remember some of the different components of prayer, Uh, very well reflected even in the Lord's Prayer as you think about that and look at it. And then after verse 11, Paul began to discuss his particular and personal situation in verses 12 through 20. It actually goes beyond that. It'll go through our text today and and all the way through uh, chapter 1. But the first part that we saw as we thought of Paul's reflection upon his own circumstances, now being imprisoned in Rome, now prepared to meet Caesar's tribunal, that it would be kind of a list of woes, that it would be uh, a very negative circumstance. But rather, what we saw in those first verses from verses 12 to 20 is that it was a very positive situation and positive primarily for the gospel. And not only is it positive, but it is also positive with the effects of Paul's imprisonment. Now, you know, you can go to a lot of people, and and I have, uh, I'm thankful to say I have not been in prison. Um, That's only by God's grace. Uh, 
but I think you're going to find very few people who ever talk about prison and use the word positive in the same sense. But Paul reflects on how God used that in an amazing way. And not only was that positive, but also all of the effect of the gospel in his preaching. And not just was it positive for his, but even his adversary's preaching was positive. Philippians 1.18 summarizes this where Paul says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So there were those that were preaching Christ in support of Paul. There were those that were preaching Christ antagonistically to Paul, but they were all preaching Christ. And that's really what needs to happen. That, that is our goal at all times, and we'll see that resounding message as we move on this evening. The, the whole aspect of this section has this series of contrasting situations. We start to talk about Paul, we expect it's going to be bad, but it's not, it's good. And that circumstances that appear to be one way actually are different in reality than what we expected. And that same condition of contrast, which we saw all the way through verses 12 to 20, continues into our text this evening. And it's also where our title comes from tonight. I've titled our message for this evening, A Contrasting Parallel. A Contrasting Parallel. Let's take a look at our text. Um, Although we're going to formally begin talking in verse 21, I'm going to back up just a little bit to the end of verse 18 for reading, because that really sets our context. And middle of the way, or at the end of verse 18 and forward, we read, Yes, And I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that in with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. A contrasting parallel. Now the whole idea of a contrasting parallel to an engineer's mind is an oxymoron. A parallel, two things that are parallel run the same direction. Railroad tracks are parallel. They run the same direction. So to think of a contrast in that parallel idea doesn't make sense. The whole idea of a contrasting parallel really comes out of the Bible. It comes out of the Psalms, out of the Hebrew poetry, where there are two stanzas that are set essentially in parallel. And sometimes the second stanza 
contrasts or is opposite to the first in order to make a point. So that's where we get our notion of contrasting parallel. But how does it fit here? Well, as I mentioned, our section began back in verse 12 where Paul started talking about himself. And we started back just before verse 19 because it's here that our theme for the text tonight begins. You see, Paul's great hope for the gospel proclamation continued in verses 19 and 20 and also that his efforts will turn out positively and that he will not be ashamed. There are several great great components of these verses, and you can go back and listen to those previous messages to pick up those details. But what becomes important for our purposes tonight is the final clause at the end of verse 20, where it says, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. This introduces our contrast of life and death. And what becomes the question of how do these radically contrasting conditions, life and death, create a parallel? Well, to answer that, we go to our first point. And I've titled our first point, The Contrast Defined, in verse 21. The Contrast Defined. Verse 21 introduces us to this contrast, which we've seen in verse 20. And that is the components of life and death which are clearly contrasting. I I think there can hardly be any two elements that are more contrasting from a human perspective at least, if not from any perspective, than life and death. But what causes us to stop and ponder here are the further descriptions. Namely those descriptions of Christ and gain. If life and death are contrasting positions, and surely they are, as we've noted, then we'd expect that their attached descriptions to likewise be contrasting. But they're not. Christ and gain are not at all contrasting. In fact, they're parallel. This defines our contrast per our point, but it also establishes the parallel. But what's even more interesting in the connection of these two descriptive terms associated with life and death is that when you think about opposites like life and death, you think of descriptive terms that might be associated with them like good or bad. But as noted, instead, these descriptive terms being contrasting, they are parallel. So then my mind would go to, if not good and bad, then maybe good and great. And that could fit, couldn't it? Okay, to live is good, to die is great. And it is for the believer. But Paul pushes us beyond our expectation, and he pushes us to really think. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, we can immediately see what it means by saying to die is gain. For those of us that are believers in Jesus Christ, we know that we will be free from the sin of this life. We will be with Christ. We will see him as he is. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more tears. We know that this is is a wonderful thing. This is gain. 
We have sorrow in this life. We have all these difficulties. So we understand that clearly. But saying to live is Christ should make us stop and ask, what's he talking about? Paul proclaims in a new way here that he is a slave of Christ. When he says to live is Christ, he is saying in a new way that I am a slave of Christ. Everything about his ongoing physical life, which is what's being spoken about here, all the way back from verse 20, life and death are being contrasted. So everything about his physical life is Christ. It is to be like Christ. It is to be for Christ. It is to point others to Christ. Paul does this throughout his writings. Listen to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Very familiar verse to many of us. Romans 12 and 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Our bodies presented to God as a spiritual service of worship. Living sacrifices. We are, every moment of our life, to be living as a sacrifice, living out for Christ, worshiping Him and showing all the world around us what worship of Him looks like. But it is not just there that Paul does it. Also in Romans 6 and verse 12, he writes, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourself to God as those alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of unrighteousness to God. That's who we are. That's who Paul is. We are alive from the dead. You know, that's a wonderful statement. And and I think... Uh, Tom was mentioning it somewhere or uh, someone recently had had made a comment about it a t-shirt you know that that said um, for the believer we are born twice but die once but for the unbeliever you are born once but you will die twice that's what it means that we are raised from the dead we will not die twice we will all go through death once but we will not die that eternal death which the unbeliever will. And so we are then as those alive from the dead to present our members as instruments of righteousness, not to present them as instruments of lust or unrighteousness. And immediately we're brought to this stunning point of application in the first verse, is this me? Is this me? Am I one of whom it can be said for me to live is Christ? Is every moment of my life so consumed with Christ that I could say, for me to live is Christ? No, I can't. I wish I could stand here before you and tell you that that was was the case with me. But I don't think it's the case with any of us. So that means that already we've got a great point for us to begin moving towards. How can I more completely Have a life that is to live as Christ. What a powerful beginning. So now with the contrast defined, we move to our second point in our second verse. And that second point is the conundrum developed. We go from the contrast defined 
to the conundrum developed. So what is a conundrum? Um, Well, it's a word that starts with C, and you know some of us preachers, we like to try to keep those things alliterated. But a conundrum is a puzzle. A conundrum is a problem or is a challenging situation. We went uh, with our kids and my mom to Atlanta uh, at the first of the summer trying to, you know, create a greater allure to get our kids to the south. And uh, we bought a puzzle for Karen's sister. And it was a a thousand-piece puzzle, this Coca-Cola puzzle. And, um, you know, it was crazy. There were different color pieces. It was a laser-cut thing. And, you know, her sister is very uh, adept at puzzle making. It took her six months She said it was the hardest thing she'd ever done. And she'd just gotten it done and we got to see it. But that was a conundrum to her. She just was stymied. She goes, there's always a puzzle where you can start with an edge or something or where you can find parallel colors. There was none of that in this because it was this starburst pattern. So that's what a conundrum is. Well, Paul here in verse 22 is caught in this conundrum where it says, but if I am to live on in the flesh... This will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. Paul's caught in a dilemma. If he remains on in the flesh, it will mean that he continues to minister to the churches, including the church in Philippi. And that fruitful labor that's being talked about here is the sharing of the gospel. Dr. MacArthur notes that there are three different meanings of that word fruit or fruitful here. The first is that it's spiritual fruit. The second is a righteous action. And the third is new believers are also talked about as fruit. Well, Paul realizes that the point of the Christian life is to be a soul winner. We've often spoken of the only thing that we will do better on earth than in heaven is evangelize. That's the only reason we're here. If Romans 12.1 tells us that we're to be a living sacrifice and our lives are to be a continual service of worship for God, won't we do a better job of all of our worship in heaven than here? When we can truly be a living sacrifice, when we are free from sin, everything but one thing. We won't be able to evangelize for Christ, which is a worship to Him. Well, Paul often speaks about this idea of evangelism as our focus. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 13, a text I think our ladies have or will soon be studying, 2 Corinthians 4.13 says, But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. There is a giving of thanks and there is a glorifying of God that goes on as we spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we believe and we speak. It is a vital action for us to be a part of. Throughout Scripture, it tells us that we are to be evangelists. 
Paul's statement about his choice in this matter indicates that he realizes that both life and death are immediately before him. And he says there, I do not know which to choose. But he is not choosing the outcome. The structure of the Greek text and the way our English Bible is recorded and if you look through various translations you will see that whether you are looking at the New American Standard, the English Standard Version, the NIV, the New King James or the King James go all the way back to the ASV, the RSV they all say it just a little differently and that's because it's a very unique text and the Lord has orchestrated it so that we would stop and say, what's he talking about here? Well, in reality, the entire element of what he's talking about is this idea that what is being chosen is not the outcome, but it really is this idea of his living on in the flesh. And his living on was no guarantee, right? He's in Caesar's prison. Most there and their opportunity to move forward positively, very unlikely. Well, this shows what he knew live, that he was living on either way. Notice one other amazing fact about this. Paul describes living on in the flesh. Why does he add that prepositional phrase, in the flesh? I mean, isn't it just living or dying? No. No. He's giving us a little subtle hint right there. Yes, there is living on in the flesh. That's all of us. That's here in this room. And then there are those that are believers who are living on spiritually, who are living on in the Spirit. Well, the question is whether or not he'll live on in the flesh. And it's a beautiful picture that's easily missed, but we'll see that it will appear again shortly. Paul's situation is a dilemma which he's not been given the answer to. This is the conundrum developed. But we don't have to wait long to see the outcome for it's in our next point, the third point, which I've titled The Conclusion Designed. The Conclusion Designed in verses 23 to 26. Verse 23 begins to expose the first side of our conclusion where it says, But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Paul expresses the natural human emotion of his struggle and of his suffering. Paul has had great travail. No one has gone through what this man has gone through. It's been staggering. The word hard-pressed here means just that. Again, Dr. MacArthur notes that that Greek word pictures a traveler on a narrow path with a rock wall on either side allowing him to go only one direction, straight ahead. It's like our statement between a rock and a hard place. Have you ever heard that? Well, the two directions are those of life and death previously discussed. Paul is ready to go home. He says he has a desire to depart and be with Christ. A quick review of 2 Corinthians 4, 7-10, or, or 2 Corinthians 11, 21-29, they explain fully why Paul's ready to go home. They show the extreme struggle which he has gone through, which he has had for the gospel. And although many sympathize, none of us can truly empathize with Paul. And know what he has gone through. None of us have walked a mile in his shoes. 
The statement, depart and be with Christ, is another confirmation of the eternal life that Paul hinted at in verse 22. He says this is very much better. The Greek statement is a most emphatic construction. In fact, it is the most positive statement that can be made in the Greek language. Three adjectives stacked together. Very much better. It is as good as it can be. I love the NASB translation here because it is so, such bad English. But it shows it. I mean, it, this, is, this would be very much better. I'm ready. I've been beat. I've been whipped. I've been shipwrecked. I've been through it all. It would be very much better for me to be with the Lord. And then in verse 22, he presents the other side of the conclusion where it says, yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Verse 24 shows us that Paul is realistic in his personal perspective on his struggle in verse 23. But in verse 24, he realizes the value of his ministry. Even the grammar of these two contrasting designs shows the importance of Paul's recognition of what is most important. In verse 23, that phrase, if you look there in the verse, it says, having the desire. That word having is a simple participle. And it, does, it is not a strong verb. It does not express a, a strong emotion. But in verse 24, it says, yet to remain on is more necessary. That finite verb, more necessary, shows us a much more powerful statement and shows us the importance that Paul understands is associated with these two contrasts. This same contrast of positions is presented by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 8. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Paul continues on in 2 Corinthians 5, 11 in this discussion to discuss the necessity of remaining for the proclamation of the gospel. He doesn't put his own desire first. He doesn't say, I'm kind of done with this. Beaten times without numbers. Three times with 39 lashings. Being stoned and dead and dragged out of the city. I'm good, you know. No, he says, whatever is best for the gospel. For me to live is Christ. It's all about the gospel. Even indicating that some think him to be mad in 2 Corinthians 11, a little further down. Yet he doesn't care. His desire is all for Christ. And the reason, as 2 Corinthians 5 and verses 14 to 15 indicate, is that Christ died for all. It's interesting that in verses 14 to 15 of 2 Corinthians 5, Three times it restates that Christ died for all so that no one can miss it. This does not mean that all of the world will be saved. We understand that clearly. But it means that Christ's death was sufficient for all. Same thing that we see in 1 John 2, 2 where it says he made propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for all sins, although again we know all will not be saved. It is only those for whom it is effectual. This is a a position that is often misunderstood. We 
title this particular atonement. And it is a most important concept. And this is what the import is of why Paul wants to stay on. Christ did this for all mankind. I need to continue to share the gospel with all mankind. Well, he realizes these two contrasting designs and denies his own desire in order to follow that which is most important for Christ and for his church. Oftentimes, we simply yield to our own desires. Things get tough and we get tired and we say, that's enough, I'm going to give in, rather than doing what's more necessary. Paul gives us an important lesson in considering these options particularly those regarding service to the Lord and to his church. And Paul yields to that which is most needful. He goes on to state our point, the concluding design, in verse 25, where he says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in faith. As he begins, he says, Convinced of this. He's stating what he's just discussed. He's stating that he understands it would be far, very much better to go home with the Lord, but it would be better for you if I were to stay, to remain in the flesh, which is more necessary. That is to say, he'll continue to proclaim the gospel along with the church of Philippi. That's what it means in verse 25 where it says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. And the result of this will be their progress and joy in faith. Paul used that same word progress back in verse 12. There it was the progress of the gospel. It's always the progress which Paul is talking about. It's what he's most focused on. And beloved, this is what we need to be concerned about. Paul can sometimes sound like a broken record as you're looking through this. It's evangelize the gospel. It's reaching out. It it is this living for Christ. And it all comes back to the idea of why we're on this earth and why we're not in heaven. John MacArthur notes this word speaks of one blazing a trail so an army can advance. And that's what evangelism is. That's what this progress is about. It's about going out to share Christ, to open the way. And it's not an easy way sometimes. Sometimes people don't want to hear what we want to say about the gospel. But we go ahead anyway and we part those doors and we move the weeds out of the way. And we cut down the underbrush. Because as those fall in behind, as they hear the gospel that which we would proclaim, and as the Spirit brings light to them, they become the army that is following behind. We are part of that army. Who led you? Who is the one who moved forward for your progress in the gospel? Who opened your eyes to the truth of Christ through the Spirit of God, of course. Beautiful for us to recognize. And that is the whole point. That's why we are so focused on this outreach that we're doing this Saturday. Is we need to get out to our community. We need to get out and tell them about the gospel. We need to tell them about what's going on here in our church. Well, it goes on to say that their joy in the faith is what they will also gain. And it is just that. The rejoicing in their common salvation, as Jude calls it. Do you know that's why our fellowship is so sweet? 
Do you know that's why if we didn't turn the lights on and off or have some fabulous organ music or start berating you from the pulpit while you're out there talking in the, in the foyer, you'd just stay talking. Because it's our common salvation that binds us. It's the love of Christ that we share. We realize something different about ourselves. We have been raised up with Christ. We are no longer dead in our sins and trespasses. And we delight in it. And as we leave here, sometimes it's, it's hours or days before we're able to again talk with somebody who knows who we are. And we love that. That is the joy of our faith. And they are delighting in this joy. The, they are delighting in what God is doing through the increase of the gospel. And the reason is because it is God's word that is bringing this forward. The church is being built. It's exactly what the Lord said would happen in Matthew 16. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And we're part of it. And it's amazing to consider that. This is a great side effect of obeying God's command to evangelize that the joy of our faith increases. Not only will your faith build up, but you will have increased joy. I guarantee you, if you come on the outreach on Saturday, you will be more joyful when you finish than when you come. I've been doing outreaches for 20 years, and it happens every time. I've had to go sometimes where I didn't want to go, but I was the one in charge, so I had to go. I've drugged my wife along and my children along. And you know what? It happens to them too. Why? Because it's what God calls us to. It's that faith that's inside us that we are working out that we are bringing it out in obedience because he's what he's told us to do so. And it produces that incredible joy in the faith. Well, verse 26 further explains the conclusion designed where it says, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Now, the proud confidence here is actually in Jesus. Again, the Greek word order here is a little different. It literally says, if we were to interpret the Greek text word for word, it would say, so that your proud confidence might increase in Jesus Christ in me. It's not like Paul saying, hey, I'm going to do something really great when I get out of prison and things are going to be different and you are going to be so proud of me. No, 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 that's not what he's saying. He's saying that your proud confidence in what Christ is going to continue to do in me is that is what is going to amaze you. That is what is going to bring that element of pride into your life. In other words, it's the Lord's work in Paul which would bring this confidence. Again, it wasn't that he was going to do something. But as he continued as a fellow co-worker for Christ, their pride in the Lord's work would increase. That's another wonderful thing about when we go out on the outreach. We know there are a number of teams throughout the community in the street, on the street next door or in the neighborhood just across the way. And we're all carrying forth the common bond and the common message of Christ. And this 
through his potential opportunity to visit the church. This would result potentially in that. Now we know this would have a a paramount impact on Paul's mind. Why? Because this was such a great church. Remember our introduction? There is no church in the New Testament like the church in Philippi. Every other one has something they get slapped on the wrist about. The church in Thessalonica, one of the greatest churches in the New Testament. But what does it say at the end of the second epistle as he slaps them on the hands because they have become so focused on Christ's return that they're no longer working? You know, let's just give everything up. Christ's coming, so let's give it up. It doesn't matter anymore. Well, it does matter. We have to stay about the business. We have to keep our hands on the plow and keep moving ahead. But Philippi was this great church. And so it's only logical that if he was again able to travel freely, that he might well visit Philippi. Well, our applications to this are abundant, and they're clear. Are we living for Christ enough to say that for me to live is Christ? And if we aren't, how are we falling short and how can we rectify that? Are we living recognizing that we are eternal? That our life matters for so much more than whatever we might accumulate or accomplish on this earth? We're not just living for today, beloved. We are living forever for those who God might use us to plant a seed or to water are we participating in the progress of the gospel and is our joy of our faith growing commensurate with the work that we're doing these are the things paul focuses on and so did the great church in philippi beloved they must be the things that we focus on as well This is the point of this letter, is to encourage us, to stimulate us, that we too might seek to be the church that reflects and represents, and with God's grace and work, even supersedes that which is going forward. And that's what he wants for us too. What an exciting possibility. What a joy to know of the privilege that we have. May God be pleased to strengthen us to do this work.